Hello. Uh, as you know, this is part of our podcast series where we have the luxury of uh, introducing some of our colleagues who are very passionate about the area of inclusion and who have overlapping um, work and qualifications that give us uh, an important um, point of view on the issue of inclusion. And the connection in this case is the connection between inclusion and happiness, which is such an incredible and exciting topic. And not just happiness in our personal life, but happiness in our business life as well. So I am here with my colleague, Tal Ben-Shahar, who I had the luxury of meeting through the MG100s. Um, I know uh, all of you know about the MG100s by now, but we are basically part of Marshall Goldsmith's legacy team. Marshall is the top executive coach in the country. And so I have had uh, the, the, the luxury of being surrounded by these incredible minds uh, and learning from them. And hopefully they're learning from uh, me as well. And now we have the opportunity to learn together. So uh, as you're not new to the series, you already know I'm Denise Parati Hummel, and I am the founder and chief innovation officer of Lead Inclusively. Lead Inclusively, as you know, is a technology-enabled diversity and inclusion consulting firm working with mostly enterprise-sized clients. But those enterprise clients are filled with people like you and me. They're leaders, uh, and they're trying really hard to be good leaders to have successful outcomes. And to do that, we want teams that are empowered and enabled and the happier we are, as you know, uh, the, 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 the better we show up uh, in, terms of, uh, in terms of our leaders and the better results that we can have. So having said that, I wanna turn it over to you, Tal, and get um, a little bit of an introduction on your amazing qualifications and what you're up to as a context for the questions that are to come. Uh, thank you, Denise. Uh, thank you for having me um, on your uh, podcast and thank you for the work that you're doing. I and mean, we'll get into it, but uh, as you know, I think it is, uh, it is very important for uh, individual, team, organizational, and, and societal well-being. And by well-being, I mean uh, much, much more than happiness, also for, uh, for success. Um, so my, my name is uh, Tal Ben-Shahar. I got interested in the topic of happiness, which is what I do today, because of my own unhappiness. Uh, so um, 30 years or so ago, I was uh, an undergraduate at Harvard studying computer science. And I found myself in my sophomore year doing well academically, uh, doing well in sports. I played squash, uh, doing quite well socially, and yet being very unhappy. And uh, I remember one very cold Boston morning getting, uh, getting out of bed somehow, going to my academic advisor and telling her, uh, I, I, I've had it, you know, I'm, I'm switching uh, majors. And she said, what to? And I said, well, I'm leaving computer science and moving over to philosophy and psychology. And, um, and she said, why? And I said, because I have two questions. The first question is, why aren't I happy? Second question, how can I become happier? And it's with uh, these questions that I then went on uh, to get my undergraduate as well as graduate degrees, and actually did become happier and, and, and wanting to share what I'd learned with others. And that's when I also started to teach. And that's what I've been doing. You know, uh, around this area of, uh, of happiness, uh, delving uh, uh, deeply also into the area of, of leadership 
and bringing them together. So, and, and just tell us a little bit of what, what degree did you ultimately, or, or degrees did you ultimately get? Yeah, so, so undergraduate was philosophy and psychology, then, then I went over to the, to the other Cambridge uh, in England uh, and read education, and then back to Harvard for a PhD in organizational behavior, which is a, a joint degree between business and psychology. Okay, gotcha. Now tell people about the Happiness Academy. So uh, you were kind enough to give me access to that incredible course. And I have to tell you, it has had great meaning in my life. I, I am a very happy person in many respects, partially because I was blessed by getting into this incredible career where I actually have so much meaning in my life. Um, I'm, I have an, just a phenomenal team. I don't know how I got that lucky, but I do two great children, both healthy. I have my health. Um, I have phenomenal friends, but I'm, you know, in a relationship transition, uh, you know, from a long-term relationship to being alone. And, you know, all of a sudden I found myself really just lonely and unhappy and, and confused because everything else was firing and I couldn't understand why I was spending so much time dwelling on the one thing that wasn't working. It was just weird. And so when you um, were kind enough to give me access to a program that is so amazing, um, I, I thought, well, at first, I, to be honest, I was kind of skeptical. I thought, Happiness Academy, what is this? So um, in as much as I am now completely converted, <laughs> I to ask you though, what, what, I understand that it came from your heart, you know, of, of exploration and all that, but obviously the structure of the program is so significant. I mean, you cover just about every aspect of life in such a meaningful way. Um, apart from your own personal experience, how did you figure out the structure of the program that would be sure to create some real meaning, in other words, some actual results that people would experience on a consistent basis. Yeah, so, you know, in, in, in many ways, the, um, the, the field of happiness studies is, um, on, on a personal level, is the culmination of the work that I've been doing over the last uh, uh, 30 years, um, which focuses on um, synthesizing the work of many others. Uh, you know, at some point in uh, quite early on in my academic career, I decided that actually doing research is not my is not my strength nor my passion, uh, but where my strengths and passions lie is uh, as a as a synthesizer, as a as a bridge builder, bringing together uh, disciplines, bringing together um, uh, different uh, eras. So so drawing on ancient re ancient. Uh, uh, philosophy, modern research on biology, history, and psychology. So in many ways, this is what the, the happiness studies uh, approach is, is all about. The idea came to me not, not that long ago, but about four years ago, I was uh, on, a, on a flight, on a transatlantic flight. And you know those states where you're, where you're uh, on a flight and you're not comfortable, and you're exhausted, uh, but not, comf not exhausted enough to fall asleep. So one of those states, and, and I think uh, many people who, who, who fly long distance can relate to it. Um, so I was in one of those states, and then a question came to mind. And the question was, 
how is it that there is a field of study for uh, psychology, which is you know my field of business or or history or biology or or geography, you name it, and there is no field of study for happiness. Yes, there is positive psychology, which is you know, where, where I spent my, you know, my my time, but um, that's just the psychology of happiness. What about um, what theologians had to say about happiness and philosophers and 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 any and economists and neuroscientists, why isn't there a field or rather an interdisciplinary field of study uh, relating to happiness? And, and that, that was the question, you know, and, and if I was exhausted until that point on that flight, from that point on, uh, I, I was very energized. You know, in many ways, I felt like I, I, was, I was touching, which was um, something which was, I thought, important, but on a personal level, um, went very, very deep. In many ways, as I said, bringing together a lot of what I'd spent you know, the, the previous 25 years doing. Um, so I, I, I decided to help create an interdisciplinary field of happiness studies, um, bringing philosophy and psychology and, and history and, and literature and film all to bear on uh, what I've come to call life's ultimate currency, the currency of happiness. Um, and you know, today you're, you're a part of the, uh, the first certificate program on, uh, on the topic. Uh, we're also uh, literally, as we speak, creating the, the world's first master's degree and soon to be PhD degree in happiness studies. And, um, and, and again, this is something that, you know, I, 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 you talked about finding meaning in, in your work and it, it really is, I feel, you know, privileged to be doing this every day, to, to, to be synthesizing, integrating, uh, the great minds and hearts uh, of of our species uh, to to bear on perhaps the or at least one of the most important questions: How can we increase levels of well-being in in ourselves, in our families, in our in our organizations, in our society? It's it's just incredibly incredibly exciting. <laughs> I mean, talk about meaningful work. If we don't have happiness. Everything pretty much stems from that after food and water and, and shelter and love. Um, so let me ask you, uh, in terms of tying in, you know, our work together and, and, yeah. and at the heart of why I have you on this show, um, can you describe to me, please, in, in, in your estimation, the connection between the whole concept of inclusion and inclusive behaviors, um, inclusivity generally, and overall happiness, um, both on a personal basis, and if you could also extrapolate that to um, the business environment, that would be very helpful. Sure, you know, uh, the, um... Uh, Carl Rogers, the uh, the psychologist, once uh, once said that what is most personal is most general. Um, you know, for me, this whole idea of uh, inclusion has has always been um, something we, we, which was very personal and very personal on a, not on a conscious level. Mm -hmm. um, you know, my both my parents um, are. Um, are, are very inclusive by nature. You know, if, if, if you know, my, my mom's a teacher, my dad's an engineer, but if, you know, someone had to describe them, uh, in, you know, in a couple of words about both of them, they would say they're very inclusive, very open uh, to other people, uh, accepting. 
So, you know, be, being raised, I was very fortunate to be raised in this, uh, in, in this environment and it, it became, you know, part of me, you know, I, I, you know, like a fish doesn't think about water, you know, I didn't think about inclusiveness explicitly uh, until, um, until I started to teach actually. And, um, and I remember the, 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 the first experience, you know, I was, uh, I was teaching my class on positive psychology and the class, um, you know, started off with uh, six students the first year, and then you know, second year I had 300 students and the, by the third year it became the biggest class at Harvard and uh, with uh, you know, close to 900 students and, and, and I was teaching a class and, and at the end of one class, a, a student came on stage uh, and said to me, uh, it was an African-American student, said to me, Tala, I really want to thank you for this class. And I said, sure, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm glad it's helping. He said, no, 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 but I want to thank you uh, for something else. And, and I said, what? And he said, for using so many examples from um, uh, the African-American and African community in, in general. And I said to him, uh, sure. And until that point, I didn't really think about the fact that, that I was using many examples because they seemed so obvious, you know. So the whole class is a, begins with Marva Collins. Marva Collins is a school, was, she passed away a few years ago, was a school teacher in the inner city Chicago. I read her book, uh, and after reading her book, I decided that I wanted to be a teacher. Uh, she uh, helped transform uh, hundreds and thousands of lives, including my own. So it felt natural to me to start with Marva Collins. You know, and her, uh, her father was African-American. Her mother was uh, uh, Native American. Um, an extraordinary woman who I, I really hoped would, would win a, a Nobel Prize when, when she was still alive. Uh, um, but I hope she gets the recognition that she deserves. You know, I, I talked about the importance, you know, about the importance of meaning and setting goals and having dreams. I mean, who else would you use for having dreams but the man who said, I have a dream. <laughs> um, so, um, and, um, and, you know, an, an, an example after example where it seemed to be, you know, the, the natural right fit, not because I came from a place of inclusion, but after that conversation with the students, I started being more aware of it. So it was from, uh, you know, sort of, you know, from, I went from unconscious competent in this realm to conscious competent, which was, which was important because I realized then that, you know, I was fortunate to be raised in a family like this, but, but, but most people uh, are not. Our society is, has not yet internalized the importance, the, 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 to, to me, the non-brainer of, uh, of, uh, of, uh, of inclusion. Um, and, and I became more aware of it uh, since and, um, and, and have been doing a lot of work and, and also started reading research on it, showing just how beneficial it is for, um, for, for happiness and for success. And this is an important connection that I often make in, in, in my lectures between happiness and success, two sides of the same coin, flourishing. Let, let, me, let me just ask you, because what you're describing, I, I, you know, at, at least if my listening skills are good, are, um, is how diversity um, or keeping an open mind and getting information on whatever source you can without any sort of biased filter is important. So that's the diversity part of diversity and inclusion, which by the way, what you shared with us is extremely valuable. Um, on the inclusive side, so on diversity and inclusion, uh, inclusion is the mindset, um, that, that, that curiosity mindset 
of being able to um, accept the differences in others and also having a natural curiosity, curiosity about those, um, those differences. Uh, some other concepts of inclusion in terms of inclusive behaviors are leaders who can be um, unbiased in their decision-making, so objective in their decision-making, as well as transparent in their decision-making. Um, and so in terms of that inclusive mindset, so the actual ability to accept the differences in others rather than judge them and being curious and open about those differences, how does that increase a person's happiness? both personally and in the workplace. Yeah, oh, big time, big time. You know, the, um, so I, I go back to, to Confucius, you know, his, his work on the, the Analects, uh, which in many ways defined um, Chinese, to a great extent Japanese uh, and Korean cultures for, for thousands of years. So one of, the, one of my favorite stories in the Analects, and I love its simplicity, is, uh, go, goes something like this. Um, so Confucius walks into a, a temple and in the temple, he begins to ask people questions. You know, he asks questions of the, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the, the instructors there and he asks questions of the, the people who, who, who clean and he asks questions of everyone. And then he hears two students at the back saying, um, the, the, the master is asking too many questions. This is not good form. Now, he overhears them and says, no, 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 asking questions, that is good form. And, uh, and you know, I, I, I told my, my children just recently, I, I read them this uh, excerpt. So, you know, kids can, can, can understand it. And, of course, uh, it's, it's a very important lesson uh, at, at any age. This curiosity of asking questions is, is so important. And it comes from a place. And... Uh, and I did this exercise with my kids where I asked them, okay, so, so what, is, what, what does asking questions say about that person? The person who asks many questions, what does it say uh, about that person? And, uh, you know, and, and my daughter said, well, it means that, um, um, that, that the, you know, Confucius is very curious, that you know, he, he, he really wants to learn. And I said, what else does it say about him? You know, and we talk and talk, and then, and then she says, um, and... Um, and also he's humble. Mm. I said, right. Now, why is he humble? Because a person who says, I, who asks questions is saying, I don't know. Um, uh, and, um, and, and if you think about it, you know, if Confucius is the, considered the, the founder of, uh, of uh, Asian philosophy, then Socrates can be considered the, the founder of, of Western philosophy. And what did Socrates famously said? He said, you know, I may be the, the, the smartest person in Athens, which is what people said about him. The reason, though, is because I know that I don't know. Exactly. Again, coming from that place of not knowing. Now, this, this was right 2,500 years ago when these two sages, you know, roamed uh, our world. It's even more so today when there is so much um, knowledge and wisdom and uh, information out there. No person can know more than just, you know, a... Uh, a sliver of the, the totality of it all. And right. the people who will, again, and this, this comes to the practical uh, aspect of, of curiosity, the people who ask questions or humble enough to say, I don't know, uh, they're the ones, they're the only ones, again, in today's world who can, who can, can flourish. Now, so th this is on the, on the practical, you know, when you talk about organizational success, 
But there are other benefits. Research came out just recently showing that people who are curious um, actually live longer. Isn't that amazing? Wow. Yeah, so. That's so, kind of related to, um, you know, because one of the things that comes to mind for me always when we teach this work is the other thing that it, it demonstrates is that you care. You know, you care about that's right. what makes this other human being ticks. You're not only, you know, telling, you're asking. You know, you're not, you're not t always talking, you're listening. And you're not always taking, you're giving, which to me yeah. is directly um, correlated with, uh, with happiness as well. Absolutely. And the thing is with happiness and success, two sides of the same coin, you know, it's not like, okay, well, I'm sacrificing my long-term success so that I can be happier or, or, or vice versa. They can, they can go hand in hand and, and often, and often do. And curiosity is one of those, uh, you know, nexus points that, that connect them together. Because yeah. when we're curious, we, we're certainly happier. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's one sure. of the, core characteristic of humans to want to learn and we're more successful. It's interesting because, um, you know, a lot of times too, um, we're, we're trying to, um, we are trying to uh, always keep these, these behaviors um, top of mind. Um, and it's not always that easy. I mean, the reason that we've developed this inclusion, what we call an inclusion virtual coach app is because a lot of this learning about behaviors and behavior change that leads to our own happiness and our own success. If it's not, if we're not getting reinforcement in real time, yeah. then, then it doesn't have relevance. So I see an app in your future, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And I uh, remind me to talk to you about that because um, in, in designing our uh, app and the development process has been fascinating. I want to yeah. share that with you, but um I also wanted to ask you, um, I found it fascinating and, and I also love your story about the fact that I don't think it started purposefully along these lines, but you, you know, you have one whole module, uh, in, um, in your happiness Academy program that is entitled extraordinary women, each of whom, um, you know, were so different in how they were extraordinary. And of course, since gender parity and, and gender equity is such a um, significant aspect of what we do, I'm listening to you talk about these women, some of whom I knew, of course, you know, George O'Keefe. I mean, who doesn't know George O'Keefe and, and Simone de, de Beauvoir, uh, the same. But um, you had women like Zora Neale Hurston and... Um, Clara White Schumann, and yeah. I, I, I mean, first of all, um, I don't know, how did, you, how did you find them, know of them, what is their contribution to our lives uh, and, and our happiness? Um, and, and, and how did it, I mean, you, the way you described it to me was almost as if it was a coincidence in a day and age where you know, we don't even know, we don't even hear about the fact that some of the most extraordinary mathematicians and scientists, for example, of the world were women. We're finding out about it now decades later, you know, through, through, the, through movies, uh, you know, and the like, like hidden figures, you know, finding- oh, What a great movie. Extraordinary women of color who, mm. without whom we might not have the space program. And it's like, really? I mean, 
is this some sort of secret? And so I want to hear more about, and by the way, I have the list in front of me in case you want me to. Yeah, no, no, I, 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 I remember them. So I um, had to print it out. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, that, the, 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 um, the lecture that you're talking about is one where um, I talk about intellectual well-being, and uh, specifically I talk about uh, Howard Gardner's uh, Nine Intelligences. And uh, I, I decided to, to have a, a lecture on each of these intelligences and to uh, exemplify it with an actual, with, with a person. Um, and uh, so I started looking you know, for, for people whom, uh, whom I admire, and, and I wrote it, you know, one intelligence, two intelligence, and you know, by the third or fourth or fifth, I don't remember when it happened, I realized, hey, they're all women. Oh, how interesting. Why don't I make the whole chapter on, uh, on, on women? And, and the reason, you know, this is where, you know, I go back to where initially um, uh, unconscious competent goes to conscious competent. You know, I thought about the question that, or, the, or what that student told me all those years ago, and I thought how important it is, because how many leadership courses do you have? where you learn about great leaders throughout history and it's uh, Always. All, all men or uh, all white men, yeah. uh, or there is maybe one or two just so that thrown in there, thrown yeah. in, you know, sort of uh, to, so that it's not too lopsided, but, but it still is. And I thought, yeah, you know what? So why not have the whole, uh, the whole lecture on that? And I must, I had so much fun um, creating, uh, creating that lecture. And, and I see it as, as, one of the most important lectures that, that I put through because, you know, so, so you talked about, uh, uh, you know, Simone de Beauvoir. And again, there, you know, so there are many people who talk about uh, Simone de Beauvoir. You know, she was a very important, a very important thinker, a very important thinker. You know, it's like uh, Margaret Thatcher said, you know, I'm not a woman uh, prime minister. I'm a prime minister. You know, right. the, the, you know, you don't say, oh, Tony Blair, he's a man. Prime Minister. Um, he's a exactly. prime minister. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's you know it's in in in, in the same way. Um, you know Simone de Beauvoir, such, such an important thinker, or Georgia O'Keeffe. You know her paintings are um, can can teach us so much about truly seeing what is what is around us. Because you know her focus on details, on the on the minutiae, and and beyond being beautiful. Uh, can teach us to be more more mindful, and of course that's connected to to, to well being. But but others, you know, so um, you know, uh, Natalie de Troyes, you know, she's um, she's not well known. She should be well known. This is this is a woman who was uh, you know world class uh, uh, swimmer. She uh, lost the use of her uh, uh, of her. Uh, of her legs, she became, uh, and she started competing in the Paralympic Games, and she holds, uh, you know, she got gold medals in uh, the All African Games and Commonwealth Games for people who are not disabled. I mean, this is a woman who overcame uh, hardship and difficulty, you know, like no other I know. She should be famous, world famous. Why isn't she? I had never heard of her before you told me about her. Yeah. And you know, Peter Drucker, Peter. The profession of empowering women. Mm. I... Yeah. And again, it's not, you know, it's, it's not you. It's the, it's the culture. These people are not out there enough. 
Now, if I ask people, just let, let's do a thought experiment. I mean, I've done this with, with actual people. So how many people, if we ask, have heard of um, Freud? You know, many people. How many people have heard of Jung? Many people. If you ask, how many people have heard of Karen Horney? Very few. You know, people in my field, some have maybe even came across because she talked a lot about neuro now neuroses and such. She is, to my mind, the most important psychologist of the 20th century. Where is she? Oh Karen Horney. You know, she wrote a book that changed my life called Self-Analysis. She helped me understand what really positive psychology, which is a new field that everyone talks about, is all about. Karen Horney talked about Freud looking at the dark side, and we need to look more at the light side, the essence of positive psychology. Where is she in our textbooks? Where is she in, in, in public lectures? Where is she in movies? Should be more of it. Um, and, you know, and I go back, you know, uh, you talked about hidden figures. Uh, I, I've seen that movie three times. Again, first time out of choice, second and third time because my daughter dragged me to it. Um, and, and, and what a powerful, why were they hidden? Why are they hidden? Well, that's what, you know, this is one of the great things that, 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 uh, that film and popular culture can, can help with. Um, you know, other, other women that I, that I took. That should have been out, out as, a, as a huge movie decades ago where. Exactly where, right. It's just unbelievable. Exactly um, right. I, 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 I want to just talk about one more. I mean, I have, you know, nine yes. women there, but just one more. And again, this is a woman who is well known, but. Uh, but if it's okay with you, I will, when we post this, I will give them your list. May I do that? Please, please. Good. Um, so Rachel Carson, you know, she wrote Silent Spring. Uh, I came across it because I took a class on uh, science in the 20th century and our professor assigned this class and you know, I, I fell in love that, you know, the, the first page I read, I, I was in love with her. Um, you know, she is the one who essentially created the environmentalist movement. So, you know, what Al Gore did through um, um, Inconvenient Truth, you know, he wouldn't have been, he wouldn't have done it had it not been for Silent Spring. And she argues there brilliantly and so many of the ideas that we talk about today, you know, she, she brought it, she, she should be the most celebrated thinker of the 20th century, scientist. Yeah, some people have read Silent Spring. It was quite popular at that time. She's not a cultural icon, a hero, as she should be. These are exactly the people that should be uh, uh, celebrated. And again, not because they're women because they're important, because no, they've changed the world. It brings, it brings up an important point though, um, about, you know, I, I, I get it that sensationalism, like, you know, fires and bombings and, and terrorism and, and all this um, sells, sells newspaper and, mm. and the headlines galvanize subscribers and all, I get that, I get that. Uh, I hate it, but I get it. Um, but one would wonder what it is about uh, women that would in some way um, attract less press than men, because this, you know, this is not just about the fact that women don't tend to toot their own horn as much as um, men do. You know, we're 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 socialized to be more humble, or we're perceived as you know arrogant or aggressive. So that part is understandable. But what's not understandable is why the media um doesn't reinforce it and i think that could be a podcast um in and of itself mm. 
but, but, but I, I want to say something, Denise, something about that. You see, there is, um, there is research, which you're, you're uh, probably familiar with, um, when uh, a student, uh, students put their hand up in class. So first of all, boys are more likely to put their hand up than girls. Right. But when a boy and a girl puts up, uh, put up their hand, the teacher okay. is more likely to call on the boy, even if it's the teacher is a woman. Exactly. And again, this is what, what you were talking about, about making these things conscious, you know, by repetition through an app or, you know, what, whatever means. Um, and it's the same way with the media. You know, many uh, writers, men and women, tend to, again, because of the way they were raised or because of what they read or what, whatever reason, they tend to call on, you know, the men who are more likely to put their hand up. Yep. From, you know, so from the outset, but even if there is a man and a woman, they're more likely to call on the man. And this is something that we need to raise to awareness. Agreed, agreed. Um, sort of a, a little bit related to that since we're on the topic of men and women. Um, are, what are the ways in which men and women um, differ in their approach to happiness? Is, mm. there, a, is there a difference? Yes. Um, so if you look at the um, overall levels of happiness, there isn't, there isn't much of a difference. However, if you look at why some men are happy and are unhappy and why women happy or unhappy, th there are differences. Okay. Um, so women tend to be, um, the women who, who are unhappy tend to be unhappy because they overanalyze and ruminate. <laughs> oh my uh, gosh, to that category. Big <laughs> And, and again, what I'm talking about now, you know, it exists in men and women. It's just that, you know, the bell curve among women is more to the right than, 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 than in men. So women tend to ruminate more. It's not that there aren't men who over-examine and ruminate and there aren't women who, who don't do that at all. On average, women tend to do that more. And they pay a price for it because very often the right way to deal with a challenge with uh, with difficulty and with hardship is not through rumination it's actually by looking outwards or even more so by acting outwards so sometimes you know feeling down the best way to deal with it is you know just go out with friends and you know hang out or go out and dance sometimes a lot better than you know thinking and rethinking and analyzing and reanalyzing uh men naturally let me ask you before you get to men because because I, I have a personal interest in asking you this question <laughs> um i find that i ruminate because i am uncomfortable with ambiguity i want an answer and Good. so i will continue to ruminate or analyze or think about it you know sometimes obsessively um based on wanting closure to whatever Good is that's creating ambiguity. Great, I'm, I'm glad you asked that because, um, and, and especially you, you're using the words, you know, wanting closure, which is of course very important, you know, or to put it in, in you know, in, in, in psychological language, a sense of coherence um, around, around uh, an episode or, or an experience. So here is where the answer lies. The answer is that we, most people have the illusion illusion that rumination leads to more clarity. Mm -hmm. uh, it actually usually doesn't. What leads to more clarity is rather than rumination, writing about it and or talking about it. So these are much, when we are dealing with difficulties and hardship, yeah, go, you know, and by the way, this is Karen Horney's idea. 
or she first talked about it, write it down. She had a whole book on self-analysis. You know, write it down. If you can't go to a therapist, next best thing. Uh, or talk about it rather than just think about it and, and you know, keep it here. This is good information. I got something very important and personal out of this podcast. <laughs> and what about men? So men, uh, again, they, they tend to act out more, which, which, which can be helpful. Uh, the, 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 um, the issue with men, though, and the reason why they sometimes fail to fulfill their potential for happiness is because they're not open about their, their emotions. Uh, they're less likely to, to share, to open up with their you know, best friend. Now, it's interesting, this um, a, a bit of a, a tangential point here, but uh, there's research showing that in general relationships, you know, um, long-term relationships contribute to, to well-being. And again, um, whether it's marriage or cohabitation, it doesn't matter, but, but long-term relationship uh, contribute, not a lot, but they contribute to happiness for both men and women. The thing, though, is that men benefit more from long-term relationships than women do. Really? Why is that? Yeah, so here is why. Because um, women generally tend to share more so with, you know, with their BFF and with their, uh, you know, with, with, with other people. Uh, men tend to be more close. Why? Because it's not masculine, so to speak, to open up or to be weak. Um, you know, so they're stronger, much of they keep it in. Now, what happens in a, in a close, long-term, intimate relationship? Gradually, gradually, slowly, men open up more and more. And again, not in all relationships, but in many relationships, this is the first time when they actually talk about how they feel and their fears and, uh, and their anxieties and, 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 and insecurities and, and so on. And when they talk about it, levels of happiness increase. Fascinating. Whereas with women, you know, they've already done that with their, you know, BFF from college. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this is just, I mean, I, 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 you know, I don't, I'm trying to keep the conversation focused on inclusion, on the connection between happiness and inclusion. But this, again, this, this is a, a topic that could go on and on. And, and frankly, I hope it does in the sense that I hope that people who see this podcast sign up for your happiness um, academy, um, and and we'll have to make sure that we give them the the website to do that at the end of this um, podcast. So we're 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 coming close to our our, our close, um, and um, so I think my closing question will be: um, What suggestions do you have relative to being more inclusive? as a way to promote personal fulfillment and happiness. Good. Yes, so, you know, Denise, going back to something that you mentioned earlier, um, the first step is understanding the benefits, the personal benefits, the uh, organizational benefits and societal benefits of, uh, of, of inclusion, of openness, uh, of diversity. Um, you know, there's so much research today. Again, today it's a no-brainer that that inclusion is good is is good for the organization. It's good for the for, for the person. Uh, but but it's an important first step to establish the value of it. You know, the the within what what's in it for me uh, of uh, of inclusion. 
Um, so, so that's the first step. The second step, and that is a more difficult step, because uh, uh, just knowing that it's so is not enough. And you were talking about this. You know, this is why you have the app. This is why you have reminders uh, for people. You know, when, when I think about, um, about change, uh, I think about the, the three R's of change. You know, you have the three R's of learning, reading, writing, arithmetic. Well, the three R's of change. That, that our model is the three R's of inclusion. I just thought I had to throw that in there. Oh, wow. Oh, good. <laughs> so the three R's of, of change are, you know, um, uh, reminders, repetition, and rituals. Reminders, repetition, and rituals. So first of all, you need uh, to remind yourself. Initially, if it's not second nature to you, if you weren't reminded by you know, your parents, as, as I was over and over again through their behavior, then yeah, you need external reminders. Nothing wrong with that. Um, um, second, you need to do it over and over again. Because when you do it over and over again, you're creating a ritual. You're creating literally Neural pathways are, are changing when you repeat an activity, whether it's a tennis stroke over and over again or asking questions over and over again. That, that's why we developed the app for that. Exactly. 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 That's why, that, you know, pe people talk about technology and how destructive and, and, and hurtful it is. And, you know, in, you're right. Too much technology is, is not good and we need face to face and all that. However, technology has great potential benefits. One of them is that it can remind us, it can be there over and over again when we don't have our parents to, to do so. You know, brush your teeth, brush your teeth. Um, what we have the app to remind us and create rituals to literally carve out new neural pathways. Because when a teacher calls on a boy rather than a girl in class, it's not because the teacher is a bad person. It's because there are neural pathways in their brain that have been habituated to do so. This is what they observed in their teachers who observed it in their, and, and so on and so on. New patterns and, have to be created. Exactly. And to create new patterns, you need reminders, repetition, and that will ultimately create a ritual. Um, totally agree with that. And that is the reason why we finally embrace technology and AI and machine learning and nudge messaging, because we realized, you know what, we can use AI for good. We can exactly. understand what behavior modification is and we can help to reinforce that um, with leaders um, you know, through that mechanism. But I just wanted to mention a couple of things. Um, first of all, just because you mentioned the three R's, I wanna remind our listeners that the three R's of inclusion uh, are being receptive, reflective, and revitalizing. So the receptive part is what we spoke about before, which is not just being accepting of the differences in others, but uh, actually curious about them. Uh, reflective is, um, understanding your own bias so that you have an opportunity to mitigate that uh, and also being transparent in your decision making, making decisions that are based on objective facts rather than cronyism or being attracted to people who are like you. And the third, the revitalizing part of it is inspiring um, others to be inclusive by your own actions and empowering them to be the next leaders of tomorrow as, as opposed to sort of lording over uh, those people um, as if you're the only one with power. So I just wanted to throw that in because I thought it was a great coincidence about the three R's. Mm -hmm. I also wanted to say that, you know, in terms of all the studies that you spoke about, and we do, by the way, have, um, uh, we do have um, very, very um, significant studies out there and we can share those um, with you uh, and with our, with our listeners. Um, 
because they come from such credible sources like Deloitte and McKinsey and Forbes, et cetera. But the, uh, those, uh, we, we will send you the business case. So for those of you who are listening to this, we, will, we, ha we have the business case in PowerPoint form to demonstrate that we get higher productivity, higher employee engagement, better innovation. Um, uh, and, and most of all, in terms of what you said about what's in it for me, well, what's in it for you is your KPIs, your goals as a leader, you are going to achieve them because your team is going to be happier because they they are going to actually be engaging with you at their highest capacity. So I'm going to leave that at that because I want to um, I want you to tell everybody where they can sign up uh, for um, uh, your course, uh, and then I'll say goodbye to you and to everyone and and close this out. Great. So um, if you go on my website um, talbenshahar.com. Uh, you can find uh, access to uh, you know, my books, uh, my online courses, the Happiness Studies Academy, and, uh, and, and more. And uh, I hope to see you there virtually and or really. And I'll, I'll put that link, by the way, in when we post this on our blog, as well as LinkedIn, et cetera, I'll make sure that they have the right information um, with your permission. Uh, and of course, for us, you can always find us on uh, LinkedIn leadinclusively.com, so L-E-A-D, inclusively.com, and we can continue this conversation. But I cannot thank you enough on a personal level, on a professional level, on behalf of myself, my team, who I think would say I am a better leader in part because of the Happiness Academy, and, uh, and so, so looking forward to um, uh, finishing off the course, which, is, uh, which will happen very, uh, very soon and on uh, keeping this conversation going. It was just an incredible value to all of our listeners. So thank you so much. Thank you very much, Denise, for all that you do. Thank you.